welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. If you would like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a great place to look. And if you'd like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com is my website. You can email me through my website. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, JamesNave.com. And also every Saturday morning with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, I host a writing gathering. It's on Zoom. The doors are always open. You can find the link to our Imaginative Storm writing prompt of the week session at ImaginativeStorm.com. That's ImaginativeStorm.com. Today I'd like to welcome Justin Jones Fosu to the Twice Five Miles microphone. Justin is the founder and CEO of Work Meaningful, his company based out of Charlotte. And Justin also will be a TEDx Asheville speaker in February 2022. And his theme is Don't Take the Exit, which we'll find out more about when we get into our conversation with Justin. So, Justin, welcome so much to Twice Five Miles Radio. I appreciate you being with us. I am so honored to be here. You applied for this TEDx Asheville talk. What was your motivation for wanting to do a TED talk? Before I dive, uh, kudos to radio, kudos to community radio. I used to be a radio host in Baltimore, Maryland. And so I was on an NPR affiliate station. I was every Friday night. It was Listen Up with Justin Jones Fosu. That was a lot of fun. So kudos to community radio. To answer your question, the impetus for me to apply for the TEDx is like, I've always really struggled with like, did I have an idea worth sharing, which is tagline. But I've done a lot of work. I've been in business and speaking for almost 15 years now. Do I have an idea we're sharing? You know, one could look externally and say, of, of course, Justin, like you're working with companies like Mercedes and Toyota and John Deere. But for me, some of the stuff I was teaching is just common sense. So it didn't feel like it was an idea we're sharing for me until I really started diving deeper into this concept around the inclusive mindset. So a lot of my research stems on meaningful work and diversity and inclusion. And I started realizing we are approaching diversity inclusion the wrong way. And we can kind of talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, I had a buddy of mine who used to be a curator for TEDx Raleigh. And he was like, Justin, I know you've been talking about doing a TEDx for a while. You have to check out the theme for TEDx Asheville. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna check out the theme. Building bridges, opening doors. This is almost the perfect theme for what I talk about with the inclusive mindset and the work I've been doing over a couple of decades in the diversity and equity inclusion work. And it, it really fit. And the way I talk about diversity inclusion fit within the theme of building bridges, opening doors. And so that's what led me to apply. And very fortunately, my first and only time applying, I was accepted. I'm very thankful and very grateful. So when you say inclusive mindset, I think, of course, of being included. Inclusivity, re- suggests that we can include people in what we are doing. Do yeah. you think the inclusive mindset is something that we are born with and somehow it gets worked out of us? Or is the inclusive mindset a mindset that one has to cultivate and 
train or a little bit of both? Yeah, I would say it's a hybrid. It's both. I think that we are more inclusive when we are younger. (laughs) And over time, we start seeing these divisions and we start having a sense of belonging. And so we start excluding more because we think and we've been modeled that that's the way to build relationships. It's my clique, my group. I've kind of always bucked against that. I've I've never really had a clique or group. I was always kind of like the loner that kind of bounced around to different groups. And part of that was because I felt like I was called to be a bridge to a lot of different groups. And I didn't realize that until later on in my life. One, I think we're born with that aspect. But the second piece is that it's still something we have to work toward, right? I'm constantly still working. I've been doing this work for 20 years. I'm still making mistakes. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. There is no like, you know, you're a certified expert in all the things, DNI, you do all these things right. So it is both. So inclusivity suggests we include. It also has a counter, which is exclusivity. When you were working in these larger corporations, and you mentioned a couple of them already, and I've looked at your website, and I know that you have done this for a long time. What do you find most predominant in the workplace, the exclusivity competitive model or the inclusive model that asks for cooperation? And how do you change change that around? Because I'm assuming your philosophy would lean more toward inclusivity and cooperation rather than exclusivity and competitiveness where one wins and the rest loses. Yeah, I I, I don't believe in a zero-sum game in terms of one has to win and one has to lose. Like, I don't believe in that. And what I see predominantly that at least exists from a macro perspective is exclusivity, unhealthy competition. I think competition is good. For me, competition is not a bad thing. We've made it kind of a bad word sometimes, but this unhealthy competition, there's healthy competition. Like, I'll give you a great example. So uh, I used to run track. I may not look like it, <laughs> but I used to run track. And, and one of the interesting things in running track was I ran my best races against um, top competition, right? And so I had better times. Now, there's a difference between that versus me running as soon as a, the person's like, on your, on your mark, get set, go. And I strip them in order to slow them down so that I can run faster. Like, that's unhealthy competition. For me, one of the things that's, that's meaningful is having healthy competition in order to move forward. So to answer the question, I see more unhealthy competition happening than healthy competition. And what I mean by inclusive mindset doesn't mean that we accept everything. And so that, that's one of the misnomers around diversity and inclusion. We're supposed to hold hands and sing kumbaya, and that's not real true diversity and inclusion. The real question is, can I respect you even if I disagree with you? And one of my key mantras in my life is that I can vehemently disagree with your ideology and yet still passionately pursue your humanity. That's one of the things I feel like we've lost the art of doing. And so I'm, I'm doing my best to bring the heart of the conversation back to organizations and people, right? Because people are made up of organizations. And so it's not just about helping transform these Fortune 50 companies. It's also the everyday person that's out there engaging with the world around them and giving them practical ways to engage. This exclusivity, when you mention competition and you mentioned there's good and bad competition, I was also thinking about criticism. There's good and bad criticisms. Do you think there's a way you can compare those two? Yeah, I used to teach and be a part of giving and receiving feedback as workshops. What's your intent? What do you hope the outcomes can be? Uh, I'll give you a great example. I have created my own 
little model for giving feedback, especially when someone says something or does something offensive. Because we all struggle with it. I still say and do things that are offensive. Like I am not immune to that, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, there's still so many things I don't know. When I first started speaking for an agency, my mentors were part of it. It was just a great time. And you had to give an eight-minute speech. And so I went up there. I gave it my best. I thought I rocked it. People came up at the end. It was like, Jesse, you did a great job. You know, loved your energy, loved your research. And then there's one lady, Cindy, who was waiting at the back of the line, who she came up and she was like, Justin, I really enjoyed your presentation. You know, do you mind if I give you some constructive feedback? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I want to get better. I want to get, you know, like help me. And so she was like, Justin, I know this probably wasn't your intent, but there were several times in your presentation where in the same sentence, you referred to women as girls and then men as men. I, I want you to know how that can come across, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I didn't even realize I was doing that. It hit me so hard in her approach because there's two things that she did that were so phenomenal that I think should be a part of giving feedback and, and that constructive criticism. As one, she assumed I had positive intent. She approached me. She didn't say, you misogynist pig. She just said, this is what you were doing, one. And two, she asked, could she give me feedback? Sometimes what we end up doing is we just tell people. We don't give people permission to open up. And the question is, do we just want to get it off our chest? Or do we want to see meaningful outcomes happen from it? And I've realized, hey, I could tell you, but if that person's not open, then why am I wasting my breath? I'm be honest, 95% of the time when I ask that question, do you mind if I give you feedback? The answer is yes. And so it allows a person to open up to receive it before I share. And then I follow up with, hey, I know you may have had good intent with this. And so I affirm their intent because a lot of people get so caught up with, but I didn't mean it that way, right? Versus really addressing the outcome and the impact that happened. So yes, I do believe that there is correlation between criticism that we give and competition because sometimes people are criticizing to try to hold back other people so that they can get further ahead. And so I think when we have constructive criticism, we actually want to help them to become better so that more healthy competition happens. And I think about those two ideas, competition and criticism, and the good parts of both, the good criticism, like the woman did with you. Hey, I have an idea that you might want to use. And you can feel her genuine care. Yes. And then, of course, there's the competition between friends or, right. you know, even in the repartee, I like repartee, you know, going back and forth between two people. So there's a little bit of competition in that. And then there's the, the negative stuff that happens in criticism and the negative stuff that happens in competition. And I wonder if we maybe are naming it wrong. So when you go negative in competition, it's no longer competition. It's something else. When you go negative in criticism, it's no longer criticism. It's something else because both competition and criticism really are designed to be very helpful, generous, open, and and inclusive. So you have both inclusivity and exclusivity within criticism and competitions. So it's a really interesting dichotomy there. Maybe we should rename those negative things something else. I don't know what they are, but... um, (laughs) I, you know, I'm going to be real with you. I am not, and I love language, uh, but I am not a big language person. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes we get so caught up in the terminology that we miss the concept and idea. And so for me, whether we rename it or not, 
I want to really help people because that's the same thing we've done with diversity and inclusion. We started naming specific things and then people are like, wait a minute, I'm still trying to catch up, but we're almost speaking to the intellectuals of all these things versus really to the heart of the people. And so whether we name it or not, the concept is, is good and bad and both. And really a lot of that stems from me, the intent. What is your intent? Do you want to help that person or hurt that person? When I was watching you on your videos, you seem to thrive on the stage when you're up there. How were you able to make the stage your home? Because I'll bet you when you're on the stage, you might feel maybe not more at home than in your living room, but probably just as home in your as you are in your living room. How did that happen? I still get nervous. And for me, nervousness means just I, I care. So that still happens. But I tell people, and this is real, like I am more myself on stage than off. And that seems abnormal because normally it's the reverse, right? People perform on stage and then they're totally different person off stage. But I am real Justin because I realized something that my mom hated when I grew up. I found that the stage people actually enjoyed me being my full self and being energetic and a little bit rambunctious and all of these things gregarious. And so I feel like I can do that more on stage than off stage. I, I kind of temper myself down because I realize not everybody can take all the energy that I have in, in one-to-one or everyday interactions. The, for me, the stage is an opportunity to actually be myself and to show up in ways that I can with my closest friends. I'm more myself on stage than off. So when you are on stage and you're working the the environment, you're being in the environment, and you do have a lot of energy, I can see that and hear that in your voice and your enthusiasm comes out. It bubbles, bubbles, bubbles. And when I watched your videos, that's what I see as well. Are you able in your work to take that energy and give space for the silence? Mm. And if you do that, how do you go about doing that? And where I'm headed with this, a lot of people listen to this show and they wonder, well, how do folks like Justin do it? Or how does anybody on stage do it? How do you work with the breathing room between the beats? Because I've been doing it for so long, it's not something I program. I just intuitively, because of a lot of practice, I do it enough to intuitively know this is a moment where I need to press pause because I want the ripple of that moment to speak to the people's hearts. It happens naturally. I don't think about, I need to pause there. I don't like write it out. Like I need to pause here. Do it because those are those moments because in learning and speaking, I realize it's still a partnership with the participant. It's not just me up there doing a monologue. It's a dialogue, even if I'm the one that's doing the majority of the speaking because the dialogue is happening in their brains. And I want to give their brains a chance to process. And so that's why I then address questions that they may not have asked. I mean, verbally, shouldn't we exclude some people? Maybe I got it from a lot of the training and classes I went to. And right now it's intuitive and I like the breadth of it. And to be real with you, even more so than the keynote speaking, especially with the work I'm doing around the inclusive mindset, I really love the workshops because it's built in moments for the silence. It allows for people to fill out the worksheet or go to the breakout rooms. Around diversity and inclusion, I really want to move the needle in the conversation in people's hearts and organizational change. 
And so when I work through a series of conversations with people, the silence is built in. You have time to allow what's shared to resonate. People can only receive so much. So now instead of doing everything, I now take a section of it and I dive into it. So that's even with the TED Talk. Don't take the exit as a section of a section. The silence is built in. Your TED Talk's titled, Don't Take the Exit. And I love the idea, don't take the exit, because I've always been out on the road. I went on the road and toured the country for 10 years, performing poetry for school kids all, all over the country. And so I would pass many exits. And often I would think, well, don't take that exit. You should take the next one where the gas is cheap. <laughs> <laughs> which means I, I you need to drive forever till you run out of gas because you're trying to save a penny on the gas. But I remember in terms of being on stage in the silence, one time I was on stage in an auditorium and the students were just absolutely, I guess they were hungry. Maybe it was close to lunch or they, they wanted to go home for Friday. Who knows? Unruly bunch. And, and, you know, eighth graders can be a little rambunctious no matter what it is. And I couldn't get them to, be quiet. And I would say, okay, we're ready to do the show. They kept talking. So I just, I decided, and this was a spontaneous moment of inspiration. I just held up my hand, the palm of my hand, and I just started looking at it. And I started examining the back of my hand and all of my fingers and my fingernails. And I looked at it. And then I looked out at the audience and looked back at my hand. And within 30 seconds, the whole room was dead quiet. Wow. Oh. It was amazing. They didn't know what I was up to. I created this little mystery for them. So that was why I was asking about the silence. It is interesting for me, the space in between, what sits there, which brings me around to asking you to talk a bit about your inclusivity workshops and this idea of don't take the exit. I would like for you to give us a sample of how you might change us right now in the direction of more inclusivity. I do a series to really dive in deeper to the concepts of the inclusive mindset. And one of the more popular ones is the circles of grace. And within the circles of grace, what I realized is many years ago, a situation unfolded in our society. I remember going to social media and like everyone had a different perspective on it. How in this work can one thing happen, but somehow all of us see it different? And I remember like really diving into the research and I realized that some of this was based on social isolation theory. Our knowledge base is based upon those that we socialize with. And if there's isolation from other groups of people, then we're missing pieces of the knowledge. And so I created a model called the circles of grace. The circles of grace really is in the inner circle, the first circle, the smallest circle is who do we tend to give the most grace to? or benefit of the doubt, ourselves. We knew if we were being Midwest nice, like, oh, it's okay. If we were being West Coast nice, like, oh man, it's, we're good, right? If we were being Southern nice, like, bless your heart. Or if we were being Northeast nice, like, you still in my face? Like, we knew <laughs> kind of the heartbeat of what we meant, right? But then after that, the next level of circle outside of that is family members and friends. And that's how you can hear somebody that's a family member say, I just don't see how they could do it. They're just a good person. Then after that circle comes people like us or people like those that we love. You hear somebody say, well, that could have been my son or my mom 
Then after that, there's everyone else. And everyone else are normally outside of circles. Those are people that we give no benefit of the doubt. They're guilty until proven innocent. We look at them with a side eye. And I realized that in a lot of our lives, we just allowed everyone else's to stay there. It's so much easier to stay within our circles of grace or circles of comfort. I was like, well, what if we challenged ourselves? And really, I looked in my mind. I was like, what if I challenged myself? I was on a flight, and there was this gentleman who got on the plane of what some might consider Middle Eastern descent. And I remember my, my facial expression didn't change. My body posture didn't change. Not a word was uttered out of my mouth. But inside my mind, I was asking myself the question, am I safe? And I started having inner dialogue with myself. I was like, Justin, diversity guy, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> and I realized I didn't have anyone that fit that demographic within my circles. Right? Now, I had a lot of Black Muslim friends, you know, Baltimore, part of my co-hosting things with Faraj Muhammad. Like, so, so that wasn't the issue. I started saying, well, what do I do? And so at the time I lived in Mississippi and I was living in a townhome community and there were several families from Saudi Arabia there. And um, I started, you know, asking more questions. And I learned so much. And I realized that we could actually create one more circle. And that's a circle of meaningful relationships and exposure. And the reason I say meaningful is that it has to go deeper than, hey, I have two white friends. Yay, I got you. Like, no, it had to be deeper where we had tough conversations and could come back to this place of trust, but then also the exposure. And that's really where that don't take the exit piece comes in is because I realized that Oftentimes, it's easy for us to take the exit. And what I mean by that, it's assumptions, beliefs, whether known or hidden about groups of people or types of people or situations. And we end up taking the exit on it versus really getting to know them. And, and I realized our brains are wired that way, James. It, it's, it's, it, it's not like we, we sometimes make people out to be very evil people. Well, we're actually I'm telling you, this is how your brain is wired. And this is why it requires intentionality. I'll give you an example. If you've ever been driving and Monday through Friday, you take this exit and then one day you're supposed to go straight, but what do you do? Take the exit <laughs> because you're on autopilot. And so some of the research is called your default mode network. And then realizing there's parts of your brain that operate in default mode network or thinking in terms of think fast and slow system one thinking where it's, it's very, it doesn't take a lot of effort. And so you're kind of on autopilot. And that's what we do with people is that when we have situations, second or third hand information, we categorize it for later. That's how our brains are wired because it wants to be as efficient as possible. And so when we encounter somebody that fits that demographic, we pull from that categorization because our brains don't want to be on overload. And so oftentimes that's what we're doing. We don't even realize we're doing it. And so with not taking the exit, we're taking a more intentional approach to engage and go forward and get to know who that person, those groups of people are. And that's the exposure piece of how do I continue going forward instead of taking the exit on my assumptions, beliefs, and pulling from second and third information. That is essentially the core of the message. And then there's a lot of practical ways to do that. It's really about engaging the beauty of humanity before. It's not an agreement thing. It's not meaning that I have to agree with them to, to not take the exit. Now, I'm not saying that at all, but oftentimes it's just asking the question, what more can I learn about this person or these groups of people or this situation that can help me grow and develop? When you were talking about don't take the exit, I was thinking of driving down the road and you see a sign that says five miles to Assumptionville. You wouldn't take the exit to Assumptionville. Oh, 10 miles to Stereotypicalville. No, I'm not going to go there either. <laughs> it strikes me 
the story you just told about the fellow getting onto the airplane, you are right. We all have these thoughts about other people. We project our own doubts, our own fears, our own experiences onto whomever happens to be walking down the aisle or walking down the street or passing by in the grocery store line. The real question in the training, I would think, is when those assumptions appear and you don't take the exit, how do you turn those assumptions into something? I think you've just given us a good example of how you take the assumption and turn it into productivity, where you don't let the assumption drive you. You let something else drive you. I would think we should not give ourselves too much weight and shame around the things that roll through our brains because we all have that. Instead, when it does happen to roll through, perhaps we look at it as an opportunity. Oh, my gosh. I don't know anything about this character walking down the aisle. This character kind of looks different than what I saw yesterday or this person I saw the day before yesterday. Okay, wait a minute. I'm making assumptions here. How can I turn the assumptions into some kind of relationship that's positive? Yeah. I I love that, James, because that's exactly the point. Uh, A lot of us, unfortunately, have seen and sometimes it's been taught and we have such a shame that we had the thought that we run away and don't engage because we're like, oh, I'm not this or I'm not that. Instead of leaning in, we lean out, right? And what I realized is that I still have assumptions. I still have bias. We may bias the wrong thing. I have unconditioned bias. Anytime I see a black woman who's in a relationship or married to or engaged to a white male, my automatic reaction is, oh, that's not enough good brothers for you, right? Like, and Uh I know that to be false. I know that people can love who they wanna love. And I know that so much, I have several black women friends who are in relationships with white men. My business manager, Dari, is a black woman who is married to Darren, a white male. So I know that to be false. But what it doesn't do, James, it doesn't erase the years of conditioning that I received from some parts of my community, some members of my family that taught me that that was wrong. And that's the issue that we struggle with, is that we think just because we had the thought that that's the issue. That's not the issue. We all have bias. The real issue for me is what do we do with it once we know we have it? And that is the crux of it. And so two examples, right? Because I just can't leave you there. Two examples. One, I start reframing, right? So I, I start creating a story, right? See the black woman, white man, condition response comes in. And then I'm like, oh, okay. They probably like met alongside of a river. I become like a romance novelist of all times. <laughs> and it's like rose petals probably fell together as they were walking and they started looking to each other's eyes. But then I realized beyond just creating our own fictitious stories, it changed how I thought about it. I was like, what if I actually take a moment to ask people's stories? That was the profound moment for me. And I realized even with my business manager, Dari, I had never asked her her story of how she and Derek met. And I remember taking a moment to say, hey, like, how'd y'all meet? And that's the piece that we've missed is it doesn't mean asking someone's story, their examples, the things that they've been through, doesn't mean that we'll always agree with them, but it does allow us an opportunity to see it from their perspective, their lens, right? There's been a lot of conversation about perspective taking. I love some of the recent research that's come out that says, Hey, instead of asking, I wonder what it's like to be in that person's shoes, why don't we ask them what type of shoes they like? And that's a body of research that's called perspective getting. 
So instead of trying to take on their perspective, we actually get it from them. Uh, and so that's one of the key elements of not taking the exit is. It, it strikes me that when we are pulling our ideas from these old conditionings that we've had throughout our life, from our community or from whomever or experience or wherever it comes from, that when we act on those old ideas, the biases, the assumptions, the stereotype assumptions, it's just really simply a matter of poor imaginative work. It's a lack of imagination. And so to me, when you're able to move away from those impulses that your community imposed on you, and move into something more expansive, it's an energetic imaginative process as much as it is, is anything else. I, I call it courageous curiosity. Uh, I feel like we had it when we were little and we've lost it. We've lost the ability to courageously be curious about people again. And part of that just, it stems from our mindset, right? Yeah, I love Carol Dweck's work, uh, Stanford PhD, does a lot of work, but she's focused on growth versus fixed mindset. And she's assessed in her research that a majority of us, we operate by fixed mindset. Our society is conditioned us to operate by fixed mindset. Now, what is fixed mindset? Fixed mindset is essentially we only want to do things that we're perceived as good at, especially compared to other people. We don't want to be seen in a bad light, and we end up protecting our perceived intelligence. And it's about perfection rather than progression. Versus a, a growth mindset is where our only competition is ourselves. Every opportunity is an opportunity to grow and learn and make progress that uh, we consistently figure out ways to grow. And, and I, I, I give this example as a way that uh, we, we know how our society does this. You know, when's the last time you saw like a news anchor come on the TV and say, uh, we'd like to bring James up. All right. Thank you, everybody. Welcome, James. All right. Um, we want to celebrate James because it took him three years to solve the Rubik's Cube. Let's, let's applaud James. No, we don't do that, right? What do we do? We do the person who can do it behind their back, the person who do it blindfolded, underwater, shark-infested water, right, with their pinky toes, with the two front teeth. Like, and, and that's the thing, because we valued in our society those who can do it better and faster than anyone else. And unfortunately, when we do that, if we don't feel like we are the best at it, many of us shied away from it. That's why I love the work on grit and continuing to develop and grow. Because in the growth mindset, it's about progress. It's about development. And that's the same thing with diversity and inclusion. One of the things I consistently saw, the reason that people walked away from the table is because they felt inadequate at it. And until we get to the point where we're acknowledging that people are growing, that growth is the focus, not that they know all the terminology, not that they know all the theoretical frameworks, not that they know all the things that even you and I know, but that they look back over a year from today and they saw growth. That, my friend, is when people will engage and come to the table because no one wants to do things where they're seen as inadequate or ignorant. But when it's reframed in a place of how we get better, how do we develop, how can we consistently figure out and learn new things, that is the beautiful aspect of how we move forward. And when you frame that concept in your workshops, in your speeches, your talks, do you sense a, an energy shift in the room? Yeah. What happens to people when they hear something like that? Permission? For some, it feels like a weight's been lifted because they feel 
like they're free to learn, right? Unfortunately, in a DNI space, we talk about no judgment, but then we judge those we don't deem worthy, that we don't deem that they know enough, that they're operating by all the standards and things that we know, versus realizing that we at one point were there too. They were all growing. I'm still growing. I look at some people and they're way better and they know more time or terminology and they execute things better. But if I focus on all of them, I will lose opportunities for myself to grow. So I didn't used to use this quote for diversity inclusion work, but now you make me think about I should. I used to use this quote a lot is that sometimes we spend so much of our time trying to prove our worth that we lose out on opportunities to be our worth. And, and what I mean by that is we're, we're so focused on making sure I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm, and we do all that stuff and we don't lean into, but how do I grow? We, we spend more time protecting rather than progressing. And that's my, my mission is to help people to embrace the progress of it rather than protecting their perceived intelligence. Or even as some people say, if I don't say anything, people will assume that I'm good, right? Like, no, no, no. How do I develop and grow? Because I'm still growing. And growth is tied to creativity and to artistic endeavors. And I use the word artistic endeavor to say, draw one line on a blank sheet of paper, and that's the beginning of your, your art. And when that's people awesome. are feeling into that essence, they're feeling into the creative impulses of the entire universe. And there's an expansion that goes on that allows us all to feel like we're brilliant in the inclusive way that the universe allows us all to be brilliant within its infinite containment. Yes. That's beautiful. That that's learning. And uh, you know and, and you so eloquently and poetically shared that. <laughs> and that's actually what the research shows, right? Is that there are two points where we lean into learning. And there's two points where we lean out of learning. We don't dive deeper into learning, some of the research has shown, when we feel like we know it all. Or we feel like we know nothing and we can't grow. So part of that process is simply moving forward. And what they found in the research is that people were more likely to learn, especially things that were difficult or challenging, when they just started doing it. Because as they started learning more and more things about it, they felt better about it. I, I, you know, I have a daughter who's 10 years old and we work through our math problems. And initially she's really frustrated by it and doesn't want to do it. And we're like, oh, you know, but then as I start slowly teaching her and she starts learning, she starts getting excited about it. And she wants to learn more, right? And she's like, well, how does this work? And that's the same thing for us to start leaning into it. So let, let me give you a practical example. We talked about the circles of grace. And so one practical way for people to lean in and just begin the process, I call it the Circles of Grace Challenge, or it used to go by the name Six Month Challenge, because every six months, I challenge myself to go out and experience things, engage with people, go to events with either people I disagree with or I don't know a lot about. Every six months, right? And what I found was the six month challenges became transformative for how I engage the society around me. I had some really good ones. I went to a mosque to hear chronic scholars speak about the issues of the day. I had one six-month challenge where I went with the police officers and went on police ride-along and, and learned the journey and challenges that police officers face. And there's so many awesome six-month challenges that I've been on. 
And it didn't mean I walked away with everyone with agreement, fully buying into what they taught, what they, what they shared. But you know what it allowed me to do? It allowed me to hear it directly from them. It allowed me to have firsthand knowledge to operate in the gray space, because not everything's black and white, <laughs> and to be able to find a way to grow and learn. And so that's one way for those who are listening. If you've struggled with like, where do I begin? What do I do? Um, it's one practical thing is choose a six-month challenge, right? Circles of Grace Challenge, where it's a group you disagree with or don't know a lot about. Things I created this whole ally model. Uh, I call it the three by five beginner allies model because a lot of the time my people are like, I want to be allies, but I don't know how to begin. I'm like, okay, cool. So engage, watch three movies, talk to three people, uh, listen to three podcasts, read three journal articles and read three books as a foundation of learning for that group, that experience or that ideology or thought. And from there, it may carry you further or it may not. And you may still feel you disagree, but at least that you've taken a moment to step foot and to not take the exit so that you can operate in gray and embrace and value the humanity that's before us. My goodness, that's a wonderful thing to do. I love podcasts. I love to read. I certainly love to talk. So I can take all of those and just fold them into my life and continue on. We have arrived at the time when I believe you told me you have to go pick up that mathematical genius that you call yeah. a daughter. <laughs> so before you make your exit to take care of your family matters, tell us how to get in touch with you and, and give us a couple of pearls of wisdom to say goodbye on. Yeah, so I'll probably start with the pearls of wisdom. And it kind of speaks to even the, the growth and fixed mindset stuff. Um, and I'll tie it into to, to DNI and diversity and inclusion. Um, one of the things I really love that Carol Dweck talks about is how we talk about people matters, right? So one of the things I do with my daughter is I, I say, you know, Lydia, and I have a son too, Peter. I was like, Lydia, Peter, you all are super intelligent. And I say, why are you that way? And they say, in their voice, because they heard me say it over and over again, because we work hard, right? And, <laughs> and that's <laughs> the thing is that we've made kind of innate intelligence the goal for so many people. If I can do it and it doesn't take effort, that means I'm awesome. And I want to challenge that. The fact that it takes you great effort is the reward. It's not about, you know, we, we've done this whole strength-based stuff and I love strength-based training and all this kind of things. I believe in strength-based. I love it. But one of the misnomers that we've done with strength-based things is that we feel like we don't have to do things that take work. And I want to call us back to the thing. Let's, let's take it back to the simplistic nature of one of the fables that I grew up with. And that's the tortoise and the hare. Tortoise and the hare. The hare. Went out fast made everybody think that this person was awesome and amazing. They darted out here and there, but because of that, they felt that they could rest, relax. And the tortoise was the one who plotted consistently over and over again towards that finish line. And we know who won. It was the tortoise who was consistent, grew in their journey. And so I want to call all of us to become the tortoise. Unfortunately, our society, we prize hairs. Issue happens to society, organizations, they come out with statements and change social media and do all this stuff. But the real life work 
in our hearts and our minds hasn't taken root. And the same thing for you. I don't care if you change your social media profile picture. I, I don't care if you create your own little statement. I, what I care about, what I hope, is long-lasting, sustained growth and progression where you create a culture where people can be valued in their humanity, whether you agree with them or not. That's my mission. That's my, my purpose. And so uh, a way that you can partner with me in that, and I'm not talking about financially, and <laughs> like, partner with me, in that. but the way that you can join with me in that work, you can go to workmeaningful.com and or theinclusivemindset.com, find the inclusive mindset on Amazon, the Kindle. And um, it's really kind of a fun read. A lot of people say, I've read it in two or three days because I try to, I try to create a book it's not a full lot of statistics. It's not a book of, you did this study. I, I point to that stuff in my resources page, but I want to create a book where people can pick it up. They can feel like this is doable and they can start making progress. And so I hope you'd make progress with me as I'm consistently learning to develop and grow. Well, Justin, thank you ever so much for taking the time out of your day to hang out with me a bit and the rest of us. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on that TED stage in Asheville. Good luck with that and good luck with everything and good luck with your mathematical uh, teaching career with your daughter. Yes. <laughs> okay, my friend, I'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. And there you go, my friends, Justin Jones Fosu talking about his work, Don't Take the Exit, Diversity, trying to explore new things he's never done, making the suggestion to all of us to, to do that. And when Justin was talking about every six months challenging himself to go do something different, like ride with police officers around a neighborhood or visit a religious community he has no experience with and so on and so forth. And as he was talking, I was reviewing my own experience around that and realized that I haven't really consciously taken those kinds of actions and I was wondering how many people out there have maybe you've done this deliberately like Justin has or maybe you've just drifted into different places that were unfamiliar to you and perhaps you even stayed there and uh, soaked up the culture that you were unfamiliar with I think that may be one of the reasons why people like to travel when you leave your home turf and go somewhere else you are naturally going to be exposed to all kinds of things that you wouldn't have otherwise encountered. So maybe in a non-deliberate way, by traveling, you end up in cultures that you never imagined existed. I remember once I was traveling by way of airplanes and ended up in the Atlanta airport. Well, you maybe have been in the Atlanta airport or other airports like that. Salt Lake City has a big airport. Denver has one. JFK, you know, go down the list of all these big airports. I believe Atlanta is the biggest, most active airport in the continental United States. Certainly in the world, it ranks up there with a lot of the other busier airports. Singapore airport might be a busy one. Airports in Tokyo, on and on and on it goes. Atlanta is a big one. I landed in Atlanta ready to get my flight to Asheville. Storms were everywhere. Thunderstorms. The, the airlines 
of course, were backed up all across the country because of all these storms. I suspect it was springtime or summertime when the storms hit. And so there I was, ready to take my little hop to Asheville. And from Atlanta to Asheville, it's about an hour and a half flight, if it's that. It's only a couple of hundred miles. You can drive it in four hours or less. So it's not very far. I'm tired. I don't even know where I've been. But I think I've been traveling a fair amount. So there I was, had my little pack. And when I fly, which I haven't done in a while because of COVID-19, when I fly, I always take a carry-on. Never case, never check my suitcases because maybe the weather will stop me and I'll have to retrench. So I always figure I won't lose anything if I carry my suitcases with me or my little carry-on bag. So that was the case that, that afternoon. And the people at the Delta counter were, were fine. They said, well, we've canceled the flight, not going to be able to leave tonight. You're stuck here for the night. You can go to the hotel and spend the night and come back the next morning, 6 a.m., catch the flight to Asheville. Well, now, this is on the idea of being dropped into another culture like what Justin was talking about. I decided, well, you know, it's a fairly comfortable airport. Why not just sleep in the Atlanta airport? I'll be right here. I don't have to stress myself. Probably not going to sleep very well anyway because I'll have to get up early and it'll be unruly. And so I thought, well, I'll just spend the night in the Atlanta airport. I had no idea what I was getting into. Speaking of getting into another culture, so the evening passes. I watch a couple of videos on Netflix or whatever, and around 11 o'clock, things are dying down. Airports do close down, or at least I thought they closed down. I thought once evening comes, everything will get quiet. Lights will dim. No big deal. I'll sleep as much as I can, get up and catch my flight. So I found a corner down at the end of one of those long walkways where the exits all sit, exit 31, 32, 33, exit 41B, etc., etc. I went all the way down to the end, found a little spot, and stretched out on the floor. Again, if you've been in an airport, you know that stretching out on the floor in an airport and sleeping throughout the night is not that big a deal because people do it all the time. So I thought, well, this is great. I fluffed up my, my gear, made myself a little pillow, plugged my iPhone in, started streaming a podcast to carry me off to sleep, and sure enough, I fell asleep camping out in the middle of the Atlanta airport. Now, here we come around to the different culture that I've been thrown into. I had no idea it was even in existence. A couple of hours later, I woke up, probably 1 o'clock, maybe 1.30, and I noticed all of these people running around. They were in really spiffy uniforms, smiling, laughing, making jokes, had the vacuum cleaners running, cleaning the windows, wiping down the seats, making more jokes, talking to each other. I woke up in a full culture of people cleaning the airport, making sure it was spiffy, making sure it was all ready for the next day when the passengers arrived. So there I was in the middle of the carpet, all of these people cleaning around me. Now, I guess they were used to sleeping bodies 
in the midst of their work day, which was in the middle of the night. Jazz players call midnight night noon because that's when they stop for lunch. So in a sense, all the noise of the vacuum cleaners and whatnot, all that noise was their jazz. And the reason I bring this up and the reason I'm thinking about this now is because it's a good example of how things go unnoticed, cultures go unnoticed, parallel universes exist within our frame and we don't even know they're there. So off and on throughout the night, I would wake up and all of these folks would still be there cleaning. Now, as I said, Atlanta is one of the biggest airports in the world. So you can imagine how much cleaning duties these people had. You can also imagine how much of a trail of mess thousands upon thousands of passengers might leave throughout the day. I grew to understand waking up off and on as these people cleaned around me why the Atlanta airport was so shiny during the day never occurred to me. These people who were cleaning were also cleaning during the day as well with their uniforms on. The uniforms were designed to look like staff uniforms. Of course, they were part of the staff. So they would go unnoticed in the daytime, and certainly nobody would notice them at night because none of the passengers were there. So these were the people doing all of this cleaning, and they seemed to really be enjoying themselves. I can't speak for all of them. I mean, when people are working and telling jokes and finding meaning in their work, and I imagine the meaning, of course, was we're making this beautiful airport nice for the next arrival people, for the greatest arrival experiences and departure experiences. So I finally managed to get a little bit of sleep and finally around five o'clock I woke up thinking, well, the kiosk will be open and I can get a coffee or a tea. When I woke up, the people were finishing their duties. The shift was over. They were putting up the vacuum cleaners and all across the terminal I could see fresh bags in the trash bins. I could see the place was clean and everything was shiny as if little elves had been in there. But these weren't really elves. These were, were devoted people working on a project they worked on 24 hours a day. So five o'clock came around. I got up, got my tea, got my coffee and started to walk around the airport. My flight was at 6.30, so I needed to make my way to the gate, all the stuff that you know so well. And I started to notice as the passengers arrived, I noticed the cleaners were still there. They were drinking their coffee, leaning against a table, relaxing, taking it easy, getting ready to go home and sleep and maybe get up and do the whole thing over again the next, the next night. And as the passengers arrived and these people in their uniforms continued to be part of the crowd, nobody noticed them. They were just part of this group of coming and going, part of the staff behind the counters, greeting the passengers, people taking folks in the trolleys back and forth to their gates. And this night crew faded into the day. And I imagine the night crew was replaced with the day crew, which continued to do the same job within the context of all the comings and goings of the passengers. I managed to get my flight, had a conversation with some guy who started to inquire about where I was going, and I made the same inquiry with him, and we 
swapped a few stories. 6.30 came round. I got on the airplane, and off we went to Asheville. I arrived at the Asheville airport, which, of course, is much smaller, and it was equally as well taken care of, equally clean, all spiffy. I walked down the corridor, walked out to the parking lot. My sister came by to pick me up, and there were the mountains, the western North Carolina mountains. My trip was over. I still had my carry-on bag. And a much better appreciation for what was going on in those airports around the world that made my arrival or departure so much easier. So when Justin was talking about not taking the exit, I did in a sense take the exit. It was a different kind of exit. I made an exit into another culture. I didn't plan it didn't do what Justin does every six months, which is to decide to take a journey into another culture, another group, another community that he's unfamiliar with. Didn't plan it, but I certainly did find it to be rather informative. And it's funny enough, I've never really told that story until now, and probably wouldn't even have made the connection between Justin's intention of moving into a culture every six months and then having some kind of experience. So when you find yourself in an airport, or anywhere for that matter, a train station, think of Grand Central Train Station in New York City, or any accommodation that you come to, a grocery store, anything, somebody has to clean that, somebody has to maintain it. And there's a culture there that you don't often see, and yet you're benefiting from that culture. So I appreciate Justin's comments about finding new ways to look at things. And we often talk about other dimensions, alternative universes, and this and that. And I guess they exist in the other dimensions outside our awareness. And we can't really prove those other dimensions exist, we can only speculate, but we can experience the other dimensions close to us, like the people cleaning in the Atlanta airport, making their way. And I wish I could tell you the dreams I had while I was sleeping on the floor, camping out in the Atlanta airport, but I enjoyed it. It made me feel comfortable to think I could participate in something while I was sleeping and wake up and have a story to tell like the story I just told you. And I appreciate you listening. Thank you ever so much for that. And we're at the top of the hour, so I have to say goodbye for now and tell you that you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to hear more of Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPV. FM radio station on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. We couldn't do it without you. WPVMFM.org if you're interested in learning more about community radio. If you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. 
jamesnave.com is my website. You can email me through my website. Would love to hear from you. Would also like to invite you to join me and my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, for our regular Saturday morning writing prompt of the week session, the imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session. And we gather every Saturday morning, like I said, at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, a group of writers, and we just generate material using a technique we call the imaginative storm. We let our imaginative minds lead the dance with our rational minds, and when the rational mind gets imaginative material, it comes alive, and the two working together, imaginative mind and rational mind, tend to have a pretty happy time. So if you would like to be part of our Imaginative Storm sessions, imaginativestorm.com, and you'll find the Zoom link at the top of the fold. And thank you ever so much for spending this time with us. Thank you for listening to Justin's comments, my story about the Atlanta airport. And I do hope you come back sometime soon. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.